Welcome to another episode of Fresno's Best Podcast. Today we are interviewing Craig Sharton. Craig has um, quite a CV. Uh, he's been involved in a lot of things in Fresno. Uh, he has a podcast called Two Guys Talking Fresno, uh, where some of the inspiration for this podcast came. Uh, Craig was a lot of fun to talk to, and he's got a lot of interesting knowledge about the history of Fresno, particularly in the downtown area uh, where he was involved um, in much of his political um, and community organizing career. So um, if you are at all interested in things downtown related, urban planning related, uh, really just in the history of Fresno, this is going to be a great podcast for you. Uh, We also get to some of the best vegetarian food to get in town, so uh, there's a little something for everyone. Uh, Make sure you hit subscribe on our podcast. Uh, Make sure you give us a rating and a review. It can really help us. And then if you're feeling generous, we have a Patreon page where you can support the cost of this podcast. All right, let's go meet Craig. So, uh, Craig, when you're not making green smoothies at home, where do you like to eat in Fresno? You know, uh, it's it's funny. I, I I have cut way back during the COVID thing, and I'm making almost all my meals at home and maybe only going to get takeout or something once every week or two at the most. Okay. So, so maybe what do you miss? What do you miss having? Yeah. What I miss would be going to Los Ponchos with a bunch of friends and having a, you know, big uh, veggie uh, burrito or veggie taco salad without the meat and uh, a big margarita. They know just how I like it. You know, Herradura <laughs> Reposada, big glass. I hate those little gla- those little margarita glasses. Uh, and just being able to laugh with a bunch of friends and eat a little bit too much and uh, have probably one more margarita than I should and calling a lift to take me home. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect evening. I got I two. I got two follow-up questions. Why do you think they serve margaritas in such small glasses? And two, um, is is plant-based a new thing for you? Uh, so I, I used to say that uh, after uh, working on downtown revitalization in Fresno, my next cause would be getting rid of the glasses that have the little cact- fake cactus stem for margaritas. Oh yes. But I think that would be a worthy. Um, worthy use of the rest of my life to try to eradicate that plague on humanity. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I get that they're kitschy and all that, but there's not much margarita in there. Yeah. I like to have a glass I can, I I should show, Oh, put my hand around, you know? Yeah. Truth and advertising. It's an important, it's an important thing. (laughs) It's, it's like a taste of margarita in one of those others. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah. So I was getting in a regular beer pint glass. Uh, I don't know why they do that. I guess because they could charge more and serve less. Yeah. Yeah. It always reminds me of a real touristy place with chips out of the bag instead of made in back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's might be good for some neighborhoods, but in Fresno that doesn't cut it. Yeah. We like our portions. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And we know the difference. Yeah. Yeah. The plant-based thing. Uh, I, um, I could send you a link to a blog I did about it, uh, for Fres. Yes. A few years ago. I had one of those doctor visits where he asked if I'd made out my will and I thought he was joking and I looked and he wasn't smiling and uh, all of my numbers were bad. And um, so I did some research and I found this whole food plant-based diet and um, I followed it. And within 
after three months, I was off of all medications except for one and had completely reversed type two diabetes. Wow. And in the next three months, I was off of my one remaining blood pressure medicine. Wow. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's really a very healthy way to go. And when I stray from it, everything starts to go in the wrong direction again. And when I get back on it, it's so it's amazing how tied that is. So like Forks Over Knives or some of those other documentaries about uh, game changers came out not too long ago about yeah. athletes that do plant-based diets. But my whole yard is all edible landscape. That's so crazy. that was one of those real duh moments like, oh, your entire yard is making plant food for you and yet you weren't eating it. <laughs> so like I was perfectly set up to shift to, uh, to this kind of a diet. Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, it is hard because there's so many places that just, I mean, the meat options and I, I'm curious. So are, how do you, in your plant-based diet, how, what role does carbs play? Cause I know a lot of people are kind of in the paleo world where they're just eating a ton of meat and vegetables. Um, and for yeah. me at least, you know, like I, I eat meat, I try to, you know, keep it to a, a, a low amount weekly. Um, but I've also heard, you know, things about, you know, how much carbs I'm eating and chips and whatever else. Yeah, it's it's the the paleo guys and the whole food plant based guys uh, agree on uh, some things, and I always think that's interesting to find where the overlap is. Whether we're talking about food or diet or revitalization or whatever, where's that where's that overlap? And we all agree that processed food is really bad for us. <laughs> yeah, and. and uh, and that's really the carb. It's not so much the carb that's in fruits or vegetables if you're eating the whole thing because the fiber uh, in the peach uh, really eradicates the need and the absorption of the sugar. So, right, right. Um, so yeah. that's, that's a good part. The other part we agree on is dairy is really rough. So paleo and uh, whole food plant-based, we eliminate or, or almost eliminate most of the dairy. Yeah. So an obvious follow-up to this is what are some places in town that do good vegetarian food? Uh, well, uh, so probably my go-tos are raw Fresno. Okay. If you've ever had that beans and greens salad, I have never uh, had anyone that I recommend uh, that to not just come back with rave reviews. It's one of those things you'll crave it. The dressing is so good. Um, and they'll serve it to you and you'll go, nobody could finish this. And then it'll be gone in five minutes. It's where where is raw Fresno? It's in uh, downtown Fresno. They also have a food truck. Uh, and so they end up at different places around town, but it's in civic center square in the Galleria over by N just South of Tulare. Okay. Got between it. N and O. Um, and they'll deliver and all kinds of things. So go to raw Fresno dot com for them um casa de tamales in the tower district yep they're an interesting one because they didn't start out as a vegan restaurant by any stretch and uh, but their vegan uh tamales are so good that it's now about 50 percent of their business which is an interesting trend line for people that don't think this is a real trend uh, yeah. people young people wanting plant-based uh, primarily. And uh, the other one is Fasika, the uh, Ethiopian Kenyan food on Blackstone and Gettysburg area. Oh my God. That's you another know, one. That they bring you that plate and you're like, I can't eat all of this. And 
you're eating with your hands and it's gone. You know, speaking of Fasica, I was talking about this with someone the other day because I got their food recently. Um, and the guy that owns it, I forget his name. He's just Charles. Amazing. Charles. Yes. He's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, we were both kind of scratching our heads like their location oh. is so is so tough. I feel like if they move somewhere else in town, um, their business would spike and they'd have more people kind of interested in that kind of food because it's just such a weird spot. Well, he is looking at a downtown location. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well. <laughs> and if you think about a downtown, <laughs> right, that's yeah. what you want is you want to be able to walk downtown and go, I don't know what I'm in the mood for, but let's just walk a couple blocks and see what grabs us. And finding a really great Ethiopian restaurant would be, yes. that's exactly what you'd find in a good downtown, right? Yeah. I mean, I could totally imagine myself finishing at Tioga or Zach's or whatever, and then just waddling down the street to yeah. Ethiopian food and just, you know, it just being the perfect evening. Yeah, you'd be with friends and someone would go, let's go to Fasica. And there would be no way that you would not just laser in on getting there, right? Because absolutely, that, that absolutely. flavor and that, uh, I can't remember what the name of that little red hot sauce is that they put on everything, but man, is that good. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I um, you know, it sometimes takes a little bit to push people to go try it. Uh, but once they've tried it, they understand it. And it's just, it's a, it's, they're hooked. And I, I, you know, it's such a cool thing and I don't want, you know, I just, I don't want Fresno to lose that because it's such a, you know, I mean, there's a billion burger places or whatever. Um, and I love it. Um, so transitioning a moment. Um, so we're going to kind of take a stroll down memory lane, um, and talk about kind of where you come from politically minded. Um, and you said in an interview a while ago that uh, Dan Whitehurst, the mayor from a 77 to 85, something like that. Yeah. Um, something like that. Yeah. He, uh, he had a big, he had a big kind of role and influence on you and how you look at uh, problems like revitalization and political change. Can you talk a little bit about him and how he influenced your thinking? Yeah. So I got, a, I was elected in 1987 on May 5th. And I met with Dan in the morning on May 9th. And um, it's one of those things, I have a horrible memory. At least I think I do. Um, and I can remember the conversation word for word. And I played it back to him a couple of times. I mean, it's just, it's amazing how when someone is giving you important knowledge and wisdom, how it like becomes like this movie scene in your head. Yeah. And you just like, I can replay that tape um, perfectly. I mean, word for word. So he said, write down the three things that are the most important to you. And I said, tower district revitalization, downtown revitalization, and uh, restoration of the San Joaquin River. Yeah. And he goes, okay, let's take the first two on that list because they're related. Yeah. He said, you're not going to learn about revitalization in Fresno. Fresno is an informational island. Very little gets in and very little gets out. You need to pack your bags and travel and meet with people in other cities to find out what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And you need to bring that information back. I mean, like it's as clear as yesterday. Yeah. And uh, so I said, well, I'm 25 years old. Uh, who's going to meet with me? And he goes, you don't tell him that when you set up the meeting. You go, Councilman, <laughs> Councilman Charton from Fresno would like to meet with the mayor of Indianapolis. You're like, he'll take the meeting. And then he'll figure out when you're, 20, you're 25 when you get there. And then he's going to be really happy to be talking to a 25-year-old that's interested in what he's doing and his city's doing. 
Yeah. And it's, it's still true. You know, young people don't realize that we would all like to help them. Not all, but most of yeah. us would like to give people a hand up if they're interested. Sure. So, uh, so anyway, that sent me on a course and I think I went to 40 downtowns within a year and met wow. with developers, mayors, redevelopment directors, like just everyone I could. And I, and he said, don't talk for your first year on the council. And if you were to go back and listen to those tapes, I hardly said a word. He said, just learn and absorb. And uh, that was really good advice. And what I really like is that as a mentor, he didn't lay the steps out for me what to do. He set me on a course to learn. And that's the best thing you can do. I didn't realize it at the time, but then that becomes a lifelong, you know, habit. You know, I, I exercise the learning muscle and then you just want to keep doing it and learning more. And then you start seeing how these things relate to each other. Once you learn enough, you know, you do the wax on wax off mm -hmm. and then you're like, Oh, they said this in San Diego and they said this in Minneapolis. I see how those two things make sense, but you can't do that unless you're in the information gathering phase first. Yeah. So well, anyway, not to, that was not really to, cool. Not to criticize my own generation for a minute, but we're much better at talking than we are listening. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're great at talking. We're great at sharing our thoughts. Um, but we have, we have some work to do in terms of uh, listening. And I, I don't know what that generational divide is. Well, I mean, I do know, but uh, it, it's, uh, it's a problem. It's a it's problem. Because, because there's, there's things that you learn about how things get done that you can't learn if you just assume that political change can happen like that. It's just, you know, and, and P, I think maybe it's my generation kind of not wanting to get their hands dirty maybe. And so just wanting to just be kind of pure and saying what they think. But anyway, that's a, that's a digression. I just, I bring it up because I think that's an important lesson for today for my generation. There's a, a great book out called the coddling of the American mind. Yeah. Jonathan. Jonathan Haidt. And, uh, yeah. Yep, oh, yep. So damn good. Yep. I agree. On that topic, you got to tell your kids. You tell your of, kids go ahead. You got to tell your kids that they're wrong sometimes. Yeah, it, well, it won't yeah. kill them. Exactly, and I'm I'm actually rereading one of his books right now uh, because I just you know had some stupid arguments on social media. He's got a book called The Righteous Mind, where Best. He talks, you know talks about how how you know why we're so angry with each other basically and where that comes from. But anyway, a total digression. So, um, but that's add that to the book list. I mean, that's, that is, that clarifies so much of where we are. Don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, a lot of it's just kind of biological, like we're just, you know, evolutionarily programmed to, you know, just go, go with gut instincts, which served us in the jungle, but now it's, uh, you know, it just, it causes us to, to just constantly be fighting with each other. Yeah. And in any population of people, there are going to be some people that are creative and some people that are orderly and some people that are lazy and <laughs> just want to sit around and eat fruit all day and, you know, try to figure out how, how you all can understand what your values are. It's really great. Yeah. So anyway, back to your, back to your kind of political journey. So you, you pick some priorities, you listened, um, and those things really helped you kind of develop and evolve as a political actor. Yeah. So, uh, the one thing that, uh, 
And then, so I took a planning class at Fresno State because that wasn't my background. Right. From this other guy, Russ Fye, who has uh, been, uh, is not with us. He is dead uh, for a number of years. But he was a very big thinker too. So he said, don't do my class. Do independent study with me and we will, we will read books and we will discuss them. I'm like, oh. So, so start out with Jane Jacobs, Death and Life of Great American Cities. Read uh, uh, The Power Broker about Robert Moses. You know, like, and I'm talking to them with this guy, and he's explaining the problems with planning in Fresno. And so uh, we put together the Tower District specific plan, which was the first real uh, redoing of our of our um, land use to try to preserve a, an historic neighborhood. So we put together a committee of 21 residents and business owners, and um, we didn't just have the planning department do it because that was part of the problem is we had a bunch of old planners with old ideas about how everything should be cut up and old houses with a little store in the middle of a block didn't fit into that design. It had to be on a corner. so we did all these crazy things. They didn't really like old buildings anyway. And they were planning to widen Olive to four lanes. That was on the city's official plan line. Um, so yeah, right. Uh, which would have wiped out every like building. Like a freaking racetrack. You know, <laughs> yeah. what, what is the point of that? Yeah. So what courage drag racing down the middle of Olive at One day I morning? saw the surveyors and they were under the awning of the Tower Theater. Like, well, the road's going to go right through here. And I go, <laughs> bullshit. Put those surveyors back and put the whatever little scope thing you use back in the truck. And I'm like, sure with well, Robert Moses fresh in your mind, you were like, hell no. Hell yeah, no. no. And they're like, you can't tell us what to do. I go, I'm on the way to City Hall. I'm going to tell your boss what he's not going to do <laughs> is I'm not going to see surveyors in the middle of Olive Avenue under the awning of the Tower Theater. That's because crazy. I'm going to get 5,000 pissed off calls when that word of this gets out. So we redid that. We put the plan line back to two lanes and uh, put some uh, planning design. that It didn't fix everything, but it was the first effort. And I thought, boy, once Fresno sees this, they'll just keep going and all the neighborhoods will redo all their planning. Well, it, it started and stopped at the Tower District for 30 years. Man. Wow. 25 maybe. Well, let's maybe since we just talked about you visiting cities and doing research, um, my next kind of question is, um, you know, in, in, in my own personal research on revitalization, it's basically like the haunted mansion at Disneyland um, for a lot of the stories that I've heard, um, you know, a lot of communities being toppled to pave the way for malls or whatever it is. Um, and so maybe, maybe share a story that you have of revitalization going poorly and then maybe one that went well so we can kind of see the difference um at least from you know my point of view is reading it as a student and someone in academics i didn't i didn't i heard plenty of negative stories but i also didn't really hear any of the positive stories of change so i don't know if you have too yeah, fresh well so uh and it's not a, a specific thing it's it's more of a global thing and really so planning in the united states didn't really happen until after World War II. And then a whole bunch of GIs came back from the, G, in the GI Bill and there were these new professions called planning and 
traffic engineering and they sounded really cool. And, um, and so there was a mindset of these neighborhoods where there are a whole bunch of different kinds of housing mixed together and shops on one block and a house on the other and an apartment next to a house. Like they were very orderly people back to, uh, Jonathan Haidt. And, and they just couldn't stand the disorder of an old neighborhood or a downtown. We had people living above a shop. They're like, that cannot happen. I always say like the people that have the plates with the little dividers, because if the peas touch the mashed potatoes, the meas, the meat, the meal is over, right? Nothing yeah. can touch. Yep. And so they laid out zoning that way. And then we came up with redevelopment, which is a funding source and it implemented all those bad plans. So they put freeways through old neighborhoods and they like the entire neighborhood that I'm in right now was rezoned from this beautifully multiple kinds of housing and everyone living together into all high residential multifamily. So it became illegal to buy a house in this neighborhood unless you were going to convert it to an apartment. Wow. Right. So that's, that's crazy. Um, so, so the existing use house, which I live in was now illegal and I couldn't sell it to anyone who wasn't going to turn it into an apartment. So what does that do to a neighborhood? And then you put freeway 180 right through it, right? Mm -hmm. That plan line went down in 1957. It said everyone in this hundred or 200 foot swath through the city, it is going to become a freeway. So what do you do? You're like, well, if it's going to be a freeway, I'm getting the hell out of here and buying one of those new houses out north that they're making. Right. And because this place is going to hell. So I'm going to sell. Well, who's going to buy? A speculator who's going to say, well, I'll rent it for two years and then I'm going to make a boatload of money selling it to the Department of Highways. Well, what happens when you buy that house for two years, put no money into it? But instead of the freeway coming in in two years, it comes in in 1994. <laughs> yeah. So you have an entire swath of housing where no money was put into it, owned by a bunch of slumlords. And now it's burned out, gang members, prostitution, drug dealing. Well, that whole swath is just the worst blight imaginable. And, and you go, okay, that's horrible. Now, what if you live across the street from that swath of blight? That's pretty horrible. So then the blight just keeps going further and further. And then what if you have this entire neighborhood just south of 180 since 1957 that's planned multifamily and not even a single family homeowner can go in and buy it. Now you get down to like 7% home ownership, which means Lowell Elementary has about 90% turnover in a given year because there's so much turnover in the rental housing. So imagine being a fifth grade teacher with 30 students and 27 of them change within the year. How are you ever going to? So then the test scores plummet. <laughs> And you could set everything right. I mean, it is on the exact opposite direction that you want things to go. And then there's some unwritten policy that no one can ever identify, but it became the truth in just repetition in Fresno, which was code enforcement became, uh, uh, basically you had to call code enforcement for them to show up to do anything. 
So they didn't just drive around this part of town and say, hey, that son of a bitch isn't taking care of his apartments. I'm going to go in and, and cite him or give him a warning and then cite him because this whole thing is just falling apart and it's an ugly mess and it's destroying this neighborhood. They weren't allowed to do that. They would only go if someone called and complained. Well, if you're down to 7% home ownership, people quit calling. Yeah. So now out north, they'll call because someone painted their fence the wrong color or planted the wrong, <laughs> wrong kind of petunias. And yeah. so code enforcement is out dealing with that stuff instead of fighting the blight and slumlords in South Fresno. Yeah. So, I mean, it just like you just see boom, 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 boom. And then you have redevelopment going into like places like downtown, like where the Fresno Bee is and the post office and just yeah. level, leveling entire neighborhoods and then building up these, you know, tilt up, you know, industrial buildings right in the middle of an old neighborhood. So, you know, there's the failures are gigantic like, and easy to find. Yeah. Easy yeah. To find. So, yeah. so not trying was, to be like a positive, overly positive. I don't need to be, but, have you seen redevelopment and revitalization done well? In, maybe in some of those cities you visited? Yeah. So there, I, I became involved with this organization that I would, I would uh, be able to argue, I think, pretty effectively was the most successful revitalization movement in the country. And it was started by the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and it was called the National Main Street Program. And what they realized is that the National Trust would go in to save a building, but 10 years later it would be in disarray again because there was no reason for that building to exist. So they did a, a national study about what downtowns were working well and which weren't, and then they took like the model or the recipe and then said, let's apply this across the country. So you had to pay attention to economics. There had to be a reason for uh, a downtown to exist economically. Otherwise, the buildings were going to go back into disarray. Uh, you had to pay attention to design, which meant everything from zoning to planting daffodils so they'd bloom in the spring and paint and all those other pieces of good design. Um, and then you had to have communication systems to market to the businesses and the property owners and the community. And you had to have some organization that did all of that work to make sure that was all being coordinated. And so a city like San Diego had 17 revitalization organizations all focusing on their little piece of the city, developing its own unique character, you know, working with their own residents and businesses like the Tower District uh, would be where it's all mixed together. Um, and as a result, all of those boats got lifted and the city would just act as the coordinator. Yeah. And they would say, um, you know, uh, we want to bring in an expert who can help our businesses um, with their window displays. So it's more attractive to walk down all these neighborhoods streets. And that meant one little organization didn't have to hire this person. The city would hire them and all 17 organizations would bring their members and all 17 would get one little notch better. And it kept happening and happening. I mean, when I went down there, the gas lamp district was 
a place that if you're, you found out your kid had been there the night before, they would be grounded because there's nothing good happening in that area. But they so much different now. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Now people complain that it's overdone and everyone hates it and all the, it's too busy. You can't get in anywhere. <laughs> that's that's the know. funny part of revitalization is, you know, it's like. When it's uh, done well, people want, people really want to go there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I do think more good stories need to be told. And, and the negative stories are important because I, like you said, when someone just drops something in the middle of the neighborhood says, all right, freeway here, um, and then leaves and waits for the shit to happen. Um, yeah. that's, that's, that's when you, you get these problems. But what you're describing is kind of local control. Um, it's working together, cooperation. Um, you have these kind of all these different groups kind of checking each other. So going back, we're just, we're just going to keep up bringing up height, but going back to height, you know, and, and talk, thinking about like, how can we be rational involves a group of people checking each other. Um, because when we're by ourselves, our biases are going to, you know, they're going to cause us to make bad decisions. Ultimately, I, at least I think. Yeah. Well, it's kind of cool because every main street program was structured the same way fundamentally. And then, and then everyone else, and then you could customize it to your local situation. But everyone had an economic restructuring committee. Everyone had a design committee. Everyone had a marketing and events committee. And everyone had an organization committee, which was how the keeping the organization healthy, making sure taxes were paid and insurance and all that. Right. So you could go to a conference and you could have Podunk, Iowa, uh, economic restructuring committee chair sitting in a room with the gas lamp district committee chair in San Diego. And they actually had things that they could talk about and share with each other uh, in that common language. And so the knowledge transfer in that main street program was gigantic. So you had 2,500 cities and districts, you know, not just downtowns, but like tower districts, like neighborhood commercial districts, Mm-hmm. all rising together and they were quantifying their data. So number, uh, how much private investment happened in the last quarter? How much public investment? Uh, how did sales go? How did rents increase or decrease? How many people got hired over the last quarter? So there was this huge roll up of data so we could all see what was working and what wasn't working. And you could say, you know, city, you're giving us $200,000 a year. The merchants are giving us $200,000 a year. We've generated $3 million over the last five years of additional investment in business. So it's a great return on investment. So that was phenomenal. Um, and the funny thing was, is it became so big and so popular that it was overshadowing the National Trust and they they didn't like that and they wouldn't give them a seat on the board and eventually... They just said, we're taking you over and uh, squashed it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I know. Uh, again, they were a victim of their own success. Now, it is coming back over the last few years. They've figured out that they need to get it going again. So it's it's on a better track now. Which kind of leads me to my next topic pretty well is, you know, I mean, there's lots of, you know, great ideas out there. But when you actually have to go and get them done, um, you know, like you said, you can convince some city planners or some people in government that it's a good idea by showing them good data. Um, but actually implementing things, I, I think is, is part of the challenge, right? So in your different roles, how, how have you seen 
uh, or how, what has the process been like in trying to implement some of these ideas? Well, Fresno, uh, my hometown is, uh, is really the foot dragging capital of the, of the country. I would say, I would say if there was a, a foot dragging an event in the Olympics, there would be a Fresno on the podium every four years. <laughs> we are, we refuse to learn from other places um, by and large, and uh, we are just convinced that we know the best way to do it, uh, even though we have no data to show that anything we do here uh, justifies that bravado. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's again back to the Dan Whitehurst thing. I, I, the name of the blog was Damn You, Dan Whitehurst, because what I what he didn't tell me is that I'm going to send you out into the world and learn all this stuff. And then you're going to come back and bring it to your hometown. And no one here was going to give a shit <laughs> about what you learned because they're going to say, now nah, we're going to keep doing it this way. You know, people will take some things. I mean, you know, cause the, the kind of the thing that I've seen people do, especially people my age is they go to big cities, they find something that's cool. And then they try and bring it to Fresno, whether it's a coffee shop or like a clothing store, like root general or whatever, they try to bring some of those things. Um, but it sounds like, <laughs> As as long as those things are businesses that are not going to influence, you know, where my, you know, who lives in my neighborhood, that's okay. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, and this isn't necessarily bad. It can kind of be a gift is that if, you know, there's, there's a, you know, the, that informational island Dan White, Whitehurst talked about is, is I've noticed as a real thing and it's not a slam against us because I'm sure there are other regional kind of sized cities around the country that are also their own informational island. And part of it is that we're just far enough away. You know, we love to say we're halfway between LA and San Francisco. And I go, when that was the last time you were there? Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. well, I, and, and between there and here, there's really no city that's that different from us that is worth driving to. Like if you go, let's go have dinner in Modesto tomorrow. I'm going to go, what is there in Modesto that I can't get here? Right. It's, exactly. It's, it's not a cultural difference. Now, if you said go to uh, Oakland or, or St. Helena or something else, it's like, well, I'm going to get a different experience. So I'm willing to drive the extra two hours to get there. So, right. So that creates a little bit of an informational bubble. We had lots of people leaving with college degrees and not coming back in the nineties. So a lot of knowledge left. Um, as people boomerang back, then um, we get some of that knowledge coming back or desire for things that they used to have where they used to live. Yeah. But also we're our own media market. And that, that plays a role that I don't think people understand. And I didn't understand until I went up to work on downtown Pleasanton you know, I was used to, if I called the press conference, I'd have four TV stations, three radio stations, the Fresno Bee and the Business Journal there to talk about something happening in downtown or the tower. In Pleasanton, in four years that I was there, I only saw the news trucks come once. I mean, I called a jazz station and said, hey, I'm in Pleasanton. We'd love to do your annual you know, jazz festival in Pleasanton. And the response was, you get our signal out there? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, they're so Bay Area focused, you know, that, yeah. that, uh, but, uh, so when I turned on the TV and I didn't see our city, you know, except on the weather map, you know, 
it's a very different thing. Here we have our own media, uh, but the downside is we're not getting that information. If you live in the Bay Area, you're going to see news about Santa Rosa, Oakland, San Jose, San Francisco, you know, all of these different cities, you're getting fed information about what's happening in other places. Yeah. You are likely going to live in one city and work in another city. And you are likely going to have friends in other cities that you go to and meet them at a new restaurant or a festival. Right. And so without being smarter, you're just normally getting more information about what cities are doing. Yeah. Right. And if you live in Mountain View and downtown Mountain View sucks, and then you go to downtown Los Gatos and it's rocking, you come back to, to your city and say, you know, we got to get our act together here. Everyone go to Los Gatos and let's find out what's working there or steal their planning director or steal a developer that's doing projects there and get them to do stuff here. And we just don't have that, that information exchange yeah. because of our distance from other places, our similarity of the Valley as sort of homogeneous and uh, being our own media market. So, even our reporters haven't spent a lot of time in other places. So they don't even know when the council does something, whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. And I feel like people that come back to the Valley, uh, you know, they might come back with an idealism and then when they're met with the reality of what it would take to, to implement some of these things at a, at a macro scale, they're just like, all right, I'm just going to have kids and, you know, yeah. go to, go to church and call it, call it a day. And I'll, I'll go to, I'll go to high top and get a coffee, you know, I'll buy a t-shirt from root general and then I'll, you know, I'll support these folks, but yeah, yeah it's, to, it's hard. Yeah. I'll go to gazebo that I get yeah. my cool, cool factor there. That's good. Um, and I could be proud to take out a town guest there, mm -hmm. but yeah, mm -hmm. this other change, man, all you have to do is, is just fighting, fighting, fighting. Yeah. Take some and stamina. It does. Unfortunately, I was given perseverance as a trait and many times I wished I hadn't had it. <laughs> yeah. So tap, tap out and just go be one of the ones riding a snowmobile and yeah, yeah. having life be easy. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think it's, you know, the other thing too is, and this is going to kind of get us talking about sprawl is that um, there's this kind of, there's this kind of push and pull in two different directions. You know, when I first moved here, I heard all these things about downtown Fresno and things that were happening. But when I got here, you know, I didn't hear much about sprawl, but sprawl is the, is the, is the quiet elephant pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, yeah. And, but at least from my understanding is sprawl and revitalization are kind of working in opposite directions. You know, they're pulling money out of the city further and further out. Um, and you know, I, I, I don't, I don't picture being Fresno being a particularly dense place. Um, but you know, it's, it's, if we, yeah, I, I don't know, it, it seems like these are two forces and the sprawl is, is, is stronger. It's got, it's got the financial support of these developers, you know, like out there on 41 and 12, you got Lennar, you know, the biggest, you know, track home housing corporation in, in the United States, building homes, you know, every day, you know, it's, it just seems like it's a huge force. So my question is, do sprawl and revitalization, do they conflict with each other? And uh, is it, is, is it just hopeless? Is it, I mean, is sprawl just going to keep pushing us further and further out and lead to blight and decay and whatever else? 
So it's it's um, it's it's always a more complex issue than uh, I think the general public really understands. Um, there are great downtowns in the middle of areas that have sprawled, um, and sprawl works against revitalization. It's really both. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, in downtown Fresno's case. You know, it is the only place with access to uh, one point, I can't remember, 1.8 million people within a 45-minute drive. Downtown Clovis doesn't have that. Downtown Visalia doesn't have that. North Fresno doesn't have that. Because of this freeway system, you can get from Hanford to downtown Fresno in less than 45 minutes. You can get from Oakhurst to downtown Fresno in 45 minutes. So there's this incredible hub and no one else has that access. But the thing that you have to do in downtown is make it good enough, interesting enough, weird enough, exciting enough that somebody in downtown or in, in Hanford is going to read about Fasica restaurant opening and go, you know, I've never had Ethiopian food. Let's get in the truck and let's go down and check it out because there's not going to be an Ethiopian restaurant in every other city in the Valley. So if you want to try that, you got to go to one place and there's a killer jazz club or blues club and there's a killer make your own whatever yeah. business, you know, bracelets or whatever the hell people Yeah. Do. So what you're saying is that sprawl doesn't have to be the it doesn't have to undermine revitalization necessarily right so if now my thought when we were doing the general plan and it's weird because cities do their own plans is if the state is going to say you have to plan for x amount of growth let's push it to the south of us let's say um Kingsburg, Selma, Reedley, Kerman how can we help you guys because we'd rather have your growth go there which kind of recenters downtown and you can, my parents, you know, live at West and Sierra. I can get to downtown faster from Fowler than I can from West and Sierra. So when people say, how are we going to get people here from North Fresno? I go, well, why don't we get people here from Fowler? It's like a five to 10 minute drive and you know, they've got a cute little downtown, but they're not going to have 40, restaurants and microbreweries. <laughs> so right. where are they going to go here? Right. And it, it seems like the whole conversation is set around assuming that the whole point is to get North Fresno people to come downtown. You know, they'll come here when, when they want to come here. Yeah. Uh, but you could get people in the Fresno high neighborhood to go downtown super easy. Mm -hmm. So let's start with creating a product, meaning a place where people want to be. Um, that the people who go to gazebo on Thursday night might go to downtown to listen to a band at Tioga on Friday night. Right. That's an easier transition than getting someone who is living uh, life terrified of people that don't look like them behind a gate in, uh, in Northeast Fresno to come all the way down to now there will be some people, but if you're going to market, if you've got, a $20,000 a year marketing budget for your restaurant downtown, who are you going to try to get to come here? The hardest possible customer or the easiest possible customer? Right. right? That makes it's sense. It's not, not that hard to do. So, um, yeah, so sprawl is, uh, 
is bad for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, just if you look at the number of streets that we have to maintain per capita compared to a city like San Jose, I think we have four times the street miles um, wow. with less income and less property value to pay for maintaining those streets. So if you just keep building more streets and you can't afford to maintain the ones you already have, that seems like a drug addict to me. Yeah. You know, my life is going in the wrong direction. I can't hold a job. I can't hold a relationship because of drugs. So what I really want is more drugs. Yes. Right? Well, that's, and it's, you know, that's it's, a, it's just, you know, developers will just keep building. Um, well, and, you know, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So, and, and I think, I, I think one thing we miss when we just put the black hat on developers like whenever I see a problem, I always ask myself, what is my role in that problem? Okay. Yeah. So the first, practically the first thing, I mean, if you want to look at bad decisions historically, well, the first bad decision is they should have put uh, Fresno on the banks of the San Joaquin river bluffs and, and put the train station there. So we had, we were on a river and a train track instead of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, if you look at Sacramento, I was about to say that. Yeah, Sacramento, right on the river. Yeah. So if Leland Stanford had said, "Here's where Fresno Station is going to go and put it on the banks of the river," uh, we'd probably love our river and run along our river and have restaurants overlooking our river. Uh, instead, it's always been kind of in our backyard instead of what we're looking at. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing to me that there's no restaurant with a patio on the bluffs our most impressive geographic feature <laughs> and you can't even get to it. It's the stupidest thing. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's very important that private individuals have their homes <laughs> on the bluffs, you know, well, even looking like, happy, up, right. Yeah. At those buildings up at the end of Palm, you've got these black glass buildings set back away from the bluff with like this horrible ponding basin underneath it that is concrete and uglier than sin. And, and you go, this is what, I mean, there should be, there should be patios on those buildings and you should be going out with your laptop and sitting at a table and going, don't I live in this magnificent place? So anyway, that's how bad a bad planning decision can be that you will pay with for the rest of your life. Yeah. And then Fresno state was going to go where Manchester center is. And then at the last minute went all the way out to Cedar and Shaw, which is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, St. Agnes hospital was, you know, at fruit and olive basically. And when they moved, they moved all the way out to Herndon and whatever, um, Millbrook. And it just emptied out all the doctor's offices that were downtown. We used to have an ordinance that required all banks to have their headquarters in downtown and that, that got thrown out. So then all the financial sector left. So there's, there's a series of bad decisions. Oh yeah. And let's not, for, let's not let the churches off the hook. You know, the Jewish temple was downtown. The, the uh, uh, Christian scientists were downtown. You know, everyone, uh, everyone was downtown. And then as soon as they saw the floodgates, they all left. So I don't let the churches off the hook. And uh, I'm, I, pat on the back the few that stayed the day the year the buddhists left i went okay well we're done if you, <laughs> if you can't keep the buddhists and then the unitarians uh 
moved a great new building out in the middle of sprawl land. I'm like, if you can't keep the Buddhists and the Unitarians, like, you know, and the Unitarian <laughs> church is in such a weird spot. It's I, like, uh, it's like, who, who's going, who's going from out there to that place? I, I have no idea. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, in any city, those are the progressives that you don't have to talk into staying downtown or coming downtown. They're the ones right. that are like, yeah, that's if, that's that's what you know we're now they're patting themselves on the back for how sustainable that building is well the most sustainable thing is not to build a new building they had a gorgeous building and they sprawled north i mean they were at ashland so it's not like they were in downtown but still right so also who is buying all of those houses right my parents lovely people they love fresno they love downtown but every time they could, they moved further north. And that's how all my my friends, I'm, I started at Ashland and Cedar and ended up at Marks and Herndon in the middle of fig orchards. You know, it was, so if no one's buying the houses, there's no more sprawl. So yeah, um, so we're all happens, complicit, I guess, is the, is the reality. Yeah. We're all complicit in it. And, and to figure out what your role is, and if you change your role in it, then, um, then everything starts to change. Yeah. And some people need to be early adopters. But the other thing that happens is we talk about the military industrial complex as if that's the only complex there is. And there's a sprawl industrial com complex here. And to change it doesn't mean that just the developers have to change. Like every bank made all their money by lending to those projects and lending to the home owner that wanted a new mortgage and um, the plumbing companies and the electrical companies and the trenching companies, uh, you know, and the asphalt companies, like there's an entire industry in a place where we don't have a lot of industry that relies on this to keep happening. Yeah. I, and that's what I, you know, I was thinking about this when I first moved here, I was asking myself, you know, besides agriculture, you know, what, what, what are the industries that are, are keeping this town of more than half a million people floating? And I, the more I looked at it, it's like, it's like the, it's the wheels of expansion, you know, and it's kind of this like continual process of like, what's the next, you know, it's kind of like the, um, it's the Frederick Jackson Turner, you know, uh, the frontier complex or, you know, what, what makes America distinctive. It's kind of our frontier mentality. You know, it's, it seems like it's that kind of thing that's keeping the Fresno economy functioning. <laughs> it's just, yeah. there's always, you know, there's always something pushing further out, whether it's contractors who are redeveloping someone or redoing someone's bathroom to, you know, any number of things that are related to this growth and housing. Right. If you have a carpet store or whatever, you know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really deep. So, to change that is is uh, harder to do because that complex is there, mm -hmm. and it's also trickier to do. Like, how do you do it without? You know, we see the uh, economic disruption that happens. Um, you know, in the last recession, and um, you know, it's it's pretty devastating to a lot of people who are working in that in that uh, industry. But it's a Ponzi scheme. I mean, you can't rely on growth forever. Right. And you certainly can't afford to maintain the areas that have been built. Right. Eventually you're going to run into the Sierra Nevadas or, you know, eventually it's people are going to be like, this is, in, this is insane because there's just so much area that needs to be covered and we can't afford it. So, okay. We're, we're talking about roads 
And recently, at least since I've moved here and lived here, uh, Fresno got a new road uh, on Fulton Street. Yep. How do you feel Fulton. about that road? Oh, I, I, uh, I love it. Uh, it was something that uh, when I started doing the Tower District specific plan and reading Jane Jacobs, uh, it was a, it was, a, it's been a, a, an awakening over the years about how the Fulton Mall, which I loved, was um, part of that bigger mindset that said we're going to impose this idea, um, and it was really a reaction to sprawl and right. the new shopping malls, which Victor Gruen designed shopping malls that killed downtowns, but then you got to give the guy credit because then he went to downtowns and said, and now if you pay me, I will help save you <laughs> from the problem that I created. That's a, the best scam ever. You know, uh, you, really you got to hand it to him, right? I mean, yeah. So my favorite, my favorite uh, uh, picture of that is from the Wolf of Wall Street, where uh, Leo goes to like a, you know, a, a diner and is trying to teach them how to be salesmen and the drug dealer uh, he asked the drug dealer to try and sell him a pencil and he takes the pencil and says, would you sign this paper for me? Um, and then he goes supply and demand. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, you know, I, uh, yeah. So I, Victor Grun is an interesting character and there's a great book called mall maker uh, about him. It's a biography of him and he, it's, it's, he's a, it's a personal interest of mine. Uh, his, cause he create, you know, I don't know if there's someone that's more influential in how America looks than him and he's some you know he's he's from i think austria or bavaria yeah. or somewhere austria know? yeah yeah and he created he created kind of what we imagine when we think about strip malls and then you know it's like citizen kane on his deathbed you know in austria uh they're gonna build a shopping mall and he's like no it came <laughs> to austria i thought i was just screwing up america uh yeah so uh so basically, the form and function of a downtown is, has really evolved, right? So you can go to a piazza in Italy, and it will have the right length and width. And nobody had to tell you what that was. It was just based on how far we could see, right? So it's uh, like biomimicry almost of planning. And that works with downtowns too. They evolved to have a certain amount of storefronts on the street. The stores knew how tall their windows were supposed to be, how far apart they were supposed to be. And nobody had to tell them. It was, it's, it's like telling a bee how to make a hive. You know, they just know how to do it. Right. But then all of a sudden, these other people came in and go, nope, you're doing it all wrong. You know, everything needs to be done. You know, you can't have people living above the shop anymore. Um, you can't have children growing up playing on the sidewalk in a real city. You know, that would be horrible. So let's level it all. We'll make big housing projects with lawn around them and all this other stuff. So that was kind of the thinking behind the, the pedestrian malls that went in around the country yeah. is, you know, and Jane Jacobs says she didn't dislike Gruen. She just said he misdiagnosed the problem. The problem wasn't the car. The problem was disinvestment and government programs that wiped out downtowns and banks that wouldn't lend in them anymore. That was much, much more complicated than, than his solution. Right. So um, basically what it did is it blocked people from being able to see what stores were there. And then once they couldn't easily get to them and forgot where they were 
and the parking was more complicated because now you had to know where to park to walk in to get there. That you, you know, retail has such a fine uh, profit margin, it's not big. And if you shrink the market 10%, you're gonna lose a whole bunch of businesses. And when those businesses stop drawing their customers to your downtown, then it's gonna put out a whole bunch more businesses and you just set the dominoes headed in the wrong direction. So uh, Fulton Street was, you know, the only thing I remember Jim Patterson saying as mayor, he said it, uh, Fulton Street was our economic Berlin Wall on downtown Fresno. Interesting. And so you do, it used to be four lanes and what we learned over revitalization time is four lanes is too many. Uh, so you could reduce it down to two. Cars could still get by and people could see what was going on. Cars also keep people closer to the shop windows, so they're more likely to buy stuff. So, yeah, yeah. so it's not that you get rid of the car. It's that you make more room for the pedestrian and outdoor dining, but you still have some space for the car as well. And you like to have parking along the side because then you can walk along the sidewalk without feeling like a car is going to veer into you at any time. Right, they also right. slow down because people don't know how to parallel park. <laughs> so you, you drive through a downtown at five miles an hour because you never know when a car is going to come out of nowhere. Right. So there's a really good form and function to it. So that's what we did with Fulton Street. It was 10 years of working on that project from when we started, when I went back to the city in January of 2009. Well, no, not, yeah, 2017 in October it opened. Uh, so not quite 10 years. But um, we didn't just do the street. We redid all the planning around it. So now you could live above a shop and have a killer loft up there. You could have a high rise and have a hotel on one floor, you know, Airbnb, a restaurant, an office, residential. They could go back to mixed use. Uh, we did this policy change where you could be downtown and have a restaurant or a brewery and not have to have a conditional use permit to get your ABC license, which is the only place in Fresno you can do that. Um, to really open up the doors, you know, just yeah. like come. Yeah, exactly. Come have a party. In fact, we even put in a addendum on leases in the Fulton district uh, where if you uh, move there, you sign an addendum on your lease that you won't complain about noise because it expressly says we want this to be a noisy, active, vital place. We will have festivals. It will be annoying to you when you need to get to sleep at 10 o'clock, hopefully, because there'll be so many people laughing and having a great time. Yeah, downtown does not need NIMBYs right now. They nope. need, they need, uh, what's the, I, I, there's another word. There's the uh, YIMBYs, yes, in my oh. backyard. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. A new, that's a new version of it. Um, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I've heard a lot of knee-jerk reactions to the Fulton Street, you know, by people that maybe are well-intentioned but maybe don't understand, you know, the economics of being a, a small business on the street and maybe didn't understand, you know, how, what an impediment that Austrian had put in the middle of our downtown. Um, you know, I, I, I think, um, at least for me, when I first came here and there was, it, was, it wasn't quite a street yet, like I, I didn't really know what was down there because, you know, it was a hike. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't drive past it. And I, you know, I'm, you know, I drive a car, obviously, but, um, you know, I, 
I don't know. I, I, I think that there needs to just be a lot more information out there. You know, I, your take is such a helpful take for me at least, you know, cause I've, I've heard positive and negative things about it, but I didn't really hear kind of like the bigger context of what the plan was, you know? Well, and, and learning from other cities, we found that over 90% of the pedestrian malls had been removed already. Really? And so when I think it was 89% had been removed by the time I started working on the project in 2009. And, and the numbers for when you put the street back in, they skyrocket, like almost overnight, uh, things get better. So it's really like, you know, you have a blocked artery and you open it back up and suddenly you can think better. You can remember, you can go for a run, you know, all these things start happening when circulation uh, happens. And um, so that was, you know, back to that, let's learn what's happening in other cities. And people would say, yeah, but what about Santa Monica's third street promenade? What you find is that the few remaining malls that work would work with or without a mall. It's friggin' right. Santa Monica. Yeah, like, no, everyone, it you, doesn't matter if there's a street there. <laughs> yeah, like it, it's it. You know, it's it's kind of crazy. You know, there's just a few examples. But we went back to Kalamazoo, which was the first pedestrian mall in the country built because one of the first shopping malls in the country was built outside of Detroit, and so they were panicked about what was going to happen, and they put it in, and they they were so proud of their mall. We were the second; they were the first that their city slogan became America's mall city. Everyone went there to see what a pedestrian mall was. And it was really part of their identity. So for them to open it up was (laughs) really, I mean, if you looked in the phone book, if you remember what those are, it was like mall city cleaners, mall city locksmith, mall city, everything like that was who they are. And they finally said, we're over it. It yeah, just yeah. is not working. And there's they, no excuse at that point. <laughs> yeah. They took it out. And immediately, like when I was back there in say 2010 or 11, which was still part of the housing crisis, you could buy a full blown house in Kalamazoo for like 150 grand on a nice lot and a beautiful part of town. And people were paying 200 grand for a condo downtown. I mean, wow. it, it, uh, they, they, the planning department said uh, the amount of planning or the amount of building permits for residential downtown right now appears to be infinite. We know it's not, but there is no amount that we project that isn't immediately surpassed. Right. right. So when, when we did the street in Fresno, I, qu- I saw in Buffalo, which is a very relatable city to Fresno, uh, but a jokes from people in New York and Albany uh, really bad weather. I mean, if you think summer in Fresno is tough, do a winter in Buffalo. Like, how would you ever have a business there? When they opened their street up in segments, because they also have a, a, a light rail line that was more complicated. But every time they opened up a block, the day it was open, it was cram-packed, filled with new businesses, restaurants, bars. So if you would have said... We would be the only city in the country that when we reopen the street, it doesn't immediately fill up and buildings start getting remodeled or whatever. I just said, statistically, that's impossible. I mean, yeah. 90% turnaround completely in their first four years. Wow. 
there's only a 10% that take about 10 years. And we're not even on a path right now to hear the 10-year mark. That's why I say we're the foot-dragging champions of the world. Like there was no, only the, the, the uh, Renoir Corner was the only building that got renovated during the entire Fulton Mall, uh, Fulton Street conversion. I mean, it's, you can't find that anywhere in the country. It is so implausible that we would not have had uh, every incentive in place, every building permit free, every, if you don't know how to do it, we'll show you how to do it. Like nothing happened. They basically stopped any construction from happening during the Fulton Mall conversion because they didn't want to let you have a scaffolding up during the construction process. So the entire construction of the street went through without any new buildings being available for new businesses that might want to come downtown. And then they have these ridiculous insurance crisis uh, requirements on anything that eliminates all the small people from actually doing renovation. It is, and then they made it impossible to do events downtown. And events are what drive that initial wave of foot traffic in that then you finally go, hey, I went down there for this killer festival or the Thursday night street fair, and I went in Los Ponchos, and they're the nicest, nicest people on the planet. Now I go to Los Ponchos once a week with my friends. That's yeah. how you get introduced, and it's, it's like a, a foot traffic accelerator. And they made it so impossible that even John Oslin, who loves downtown as much as anybody else, moved suds in the city out. They were going to have ten or $15,000 worth of fees and insurance requirements before he even sold his first ticket. Right. He's like, it just doesn't pay for itself. He calls Clovis and they go, yep, come down. No, no charge. We'll handle everything for you. Yeah. You can't do that. You gotta, you gotta help these things get going. And yeah. we're, we're an impediment. You know, and I, I, I think this kind of segues into a, a bigger topic about revitalization, um, which is paternalism, you know, uh, Victor Gruen knowing what was best for downtown and creating something that had, you know, that he had sprouted from his, you know, ideology of whatever, you know, and I, so when I go downtown, I see, I, I see a mixture of things, you know, I see something like Tioga, uh, I see something like uh, some of the Bitwise buildings. And then I see, if you drive down Fulton street, I see shops that sell dresses for quinceaneras. Yep. And I think at least my worry is, and what I've seen in reading about revitalization is that, uh, groups with political power are the ones that often uh, their whatever their economic interests are they're the ones that value are valued ultimately um, and so how do you how do you how do you choose you know how do you choose because there's there's people that buy that go downtown to buy dresses right um, certain certain ethnic groups go downtown for specific things and how do you make sure that revitalization doesn't just run those people out of the neighborhood well the the, the main thing ultimately is the market will either support or not support things. Um, and, and the best downtowns to me, and this is opinion that I think is shared by others, is you want a downtown that reflects your community. And again, I'm not saying Fresno, I'm saying Fresno, Madera, Kings and Tulare counties, that's who we are. And yeah. so when you go downtown, if you were to take a snapshot of the main intersection every day, 
that those pedestrians would look exactly like our census data. Yeah. Socioeconomically, ethnically, religiously, whatever that is, and that our businesses would reflect that. Because we don't think we're special, and we are. Like, people would come here to experience who we are and would be really excited about it. Now, we have really low self-esteem, so we think we're supposed to act and dress like other people because we don't feel good enough about who we are to be authentic. Everybody is hungry for our authentic, right? That's what, that's what we're craving. And so that's what we really want to, to offer. Yeah. And then if you're authentic, you can't keep people away. Yeah. Like, you know, there are people that will come from all over to find uh, um, a Mexican immigrant who is making handmade boots or saddles in a shop in downtown Fresno that will walk by and not really appreciate. And then you'll find out some big country star is getting his boots made by someone in Fresno, right? Yeah. So it's honoring those kinds of pieces. So if you think about the nationalities, like just restaurants are such an easy uh, entree, I was going to say, into experiencing culture. Um, you know, where we talked about, I want to walk down the street, I want to see Mexican, I want to see Armenian, I want to see Syrian, I want to see Ethiopian, I want to see uh, uh, Persian, I want to see Jewish, I want to see... Mong, I want to see everything. And then you know that you're in this place that's like, oh crap, everyone else talks about diversity. Everyone else has a plan about how to achieve diversity. These people are so damn diverse and they don't even know it. Yeah. Like yeah. they don't even know it's interesting. That's, that's the biggest. When I went to McLean High School for the opening of the Union Bank branch there, and the bagpipe band came out and it was primarily made up of Hmong and uh, Mexican kids playing bagpipes wearing kilts. I'm like, this is freaking, this is Fresno. Like we don't even, no one is even like taking pictures because they don't even realize that in the rest of the world, this is so friggin' weird <laughs> and interesting. Yeah. Like you know, a Hmong kid is playing the bagpipes. Yes. Like, this, we are so diverse. And it is so freaking interesting. If you brought someone from New York and they saw that happening, they go like, what the hell? This, this is yeah, incredible. I, um, you know, uh, a friend of mine, Alice Daniel, uh, who's at KVPR, she, you know, she's a person who relocated to the Valley or not, or, yeah, located to the Valley um, for work. And she, she talks about how one of the, least the most misunderstood things about the valley is diversity and i i think that's just a lot of people you know it's it's who's in charge or who's in power looking similar um but within our community we're incredibly diverse and it's sad that people don't realize that i i, I you know I, mean, I don't want to speak for everyone but it's you know ultimately i had assumptions in my mind when i moved here about who was here but let's say, let's as a Irish Mexican adopted by a Volga German with a half Armenian son. That's just me. Yeah. That's friggin' weird. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, 
that's America. And I, I, and, and I think that's what ultimately is our diversity is our strength and it's something we need to lean into. But let's, um, let's transition to talking about booze and Bitwise, which is what I refer to downtown as these days. B&B. B&B. Um, so there's, it, it seems to me, and maybe we'll start with booze because it's always better to start with booze. Um, there's this brewery district concept. Um, and there's a couple, there's a couple down there. I think, you know, obviously Tioga is the main player, but now you have Zach's and you have South of Shaw coming in and they're apparently going to make pizzas, which I'm excited about. Um, Can booze be the impetus to draw people to downtown and can, can, you know, which is connected to that. um, Is, is there enough of a market that can, support a brewery district the size that I think people are planning to make down there? Well, so the, the way the brewery district thing was handled, I, I really uh, disagree with. And, and it, the way it materialized was, again, for our need to show that we're, we're so desperate to show that we're achieving some success. Uh, I mean, for 30 years, the downtown association would run the same ad about all the projects that were coming and they'd run it in the special section in the B. But if you took that ad over 20 years, let's say this ad and this ad 20 years later, 80% of the projects were still the same that never came to fruition. And people stop listening. Like I always say, don't tell me what you're going to do. Tell me what you've done. You know, yeah. I'm going to go back to school. Okay. Tell me when you have signed up. Tell me when you're studying. Tell me when you graduate. Cause yeah, you know, yeah. tell, I'm going to write a book. Okay. What, what's that ISBN number? You know, like there's a whole bunch of people that are going to write a book. So downtown was that way. So desperate to show that they were doing something that it, you can't call it a brewery district if there's only one brewery there and then two breweries there and then three breweries, but now you're going to start including the other breweries, which you have to get in a car to get to. That's not a district. Now you can plan a brewery district, but don't sell it as if it already happened, sell it as something you're working toward and you're figuring out how to get them permitted and how you'll market them when they're here and how you're going to attract more of them and how you're going to help them be successful when they get here. That's an okay thing to do, but putting your flag down and saying it's happened before it's happened plays into our community's skepticism that it will ever happen. Right? Yeah. So, and it's just such a, it's such a, it's a burden, you know, because it, 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 it just sets it up for failure, right? I mean, it's just, cause if you announce to everyone, you're going back to school and then you realize you have to wait a semester to go to school for some reason, whether it's financial or whatever, um, and then people ask you, well, how's it going? And then you say, well, there, I ran into these. And then everyone's going to think you're full of shit because, you know, you're not doing it when you said you're going to do it. And I, right. and it, it just feels like it just needed to happen organically. We didn't even put a label on it. And that's just. Right. No, I, I, you have, you have good instincts that way. That is, that is exactly the case. And again, it comes from our, our uh, low self esteem that we have to proclaim something rather than uh, just being something, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, if, if you're an interested person, interesting person who's interested in life and you want to learn about other people's musical tastes and, you know, you're just curious and you're learning more stuff and becoming who you are, you're going to have a whole bunch of friends. Yeah. 
But if you have to buy everyone dinner every Saturday night to have 12 people around you, that's an entourage. And when the dinner, free dinner stops, they're leaving. Yep. And, and cities are that way too. You can't just buy it. You have to become it. You know? right. And that's what I mean. Like, be proud of who we are. You know, you know, oh, we're not LA or San Francisco. You're goddamn right. And so there's no other city in the world that's LA or San Francisco. There's only one of each. They're not even like each other. Right. Like just develop who you are. Yeah. Don't be disappointed in who you're not. Right. Yeah. Um, so, which, which is a perfect transition to Bitwise. Um, yep. you know, what that was. So when I, when I, cause we relocated, uh, my partner, and I relocated from Los Angeles to here. She's originally from here. Um, I'm not. And obviously, you know, when we made the decision to move here, I had some skepticism, understandably. Uh, we were living in Claremont, which is a, a little, a little, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not uh, Santa Monica, but it's also quite nice. Um, and I, you know, I started doing investigation and I was like, oh, there's this, there's this cool tech company that's doing things downtown. I didn't quite know what they were because the name was kind of vague. I was like, Bitwise Industries, what does that even mean? And so when I got here, I was, I was very excited. I was like, okay, this is cool. Um, bringing, bringing, uh, you know, jobs to the community. Um, and you know, my, my view of them now is a, a little bit more nuanced. Um, you know, they're going to have some of the challenges that I saw when I lived in San Francisco, kind of turning the, the, the real tech boom there, um, which is, you know, uh, tech, tech, tech is a great thing for jobs, but it doesn't fix cities. And so I guess what my question is, are, is, what are some of the challenges that Bitwise will have? And because they've decided to take a really active role in this process and, you know, basically redoing these warehouse buildings. Um, so what do you think are some of the challenges that they'll face? And um, uh, what are the things that we should like, maybe say, this is a great thing for you guys to do to help out, but maybe this is something that should be left to more of a community organization, not a, you know, like a real estate development company. Well, so um, it's, it's, it is a good segue from the booze thing, because if you, if you understand the business model of what, what it's going to take for a downtown to transition from being, you know, the stores are all open from 10 to 6, and then it's completely dead, right? Mm -hmm. What is going to keep people there longer is going to be going out for a drink after work after 6 or coming back down for for an event or, um, or dinner or whatever. Right. And then you're going to start to get more foot traffic at night, which is going to help route, you know, a general store downtown. They'll be open from 12 to nine instead of 10 to six, because there are more people walking around buying stuff at that time. So, um, so that's an important transition. Also to pay for a building to get renovated means that rents are necessarily going to go up. So buildings aren't just falling down like they are now. Right. Well, who can pay for more rent are people that are selling drinks or beer or wine along with a meal at night, which is more expensive than a lunch. So you'll go to Los Panchos for the two item combo for $7.99 for lunch. But if you come for dinner, you're going to have the, um, um, oh shoot, I can't remember the name. Um, but something big and fancy that you can't get somewhere else and you'll have two margaritas along with it, which means your price tag is going to be $80 instead of $8. Yeah. And so, 
So that all goes along with that change. Uh, if you're only open for breakfast or lunch, you can't pay a higher rent unless you're really super good to get that traffic in. You've got to go evening to be able to do it. Now, what helps with the tech company is they tend to attract younger people who are going to make a little bit more disposable income and pour more of that disposable income into lifestyle. So right. food, supporting a local artist, supporting a local ta tattoo artist, um, drink, cocktails, events, live music, those kinds of things. It's not going to be well, it might be me, but it's not going to be most people my age that are going to a show at Fulton 55 that doesn't start till nine o'clock. You know, right. friend, most of my high school buddies are going to go like, that's nice. Uh, post a picture on Instagram and I'll look at it tomorrow. Yeah, morning that's when, that's when Ken Burns starts on my TV, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, so having that tech worker, that young tech worker, there's a culture of going out together. I right. say tech runs on uh, caffeine and craft beer. Yep. So, so there is a good overlap between those things. And they also don't mind living downtown and walking and riding their bike. And, you know, they're probably more active than suburban people. I know when I went, my sister worked up in uh, Saratoga and had a party one night and they were all computer engineers and tech guys, you know, every single one of them had been mountain biking or hiking or rock climbing or wine tasting or something out doing something. Yeah. So it does attract that, um, that lifestyle, which is really important. Um, but it's not, it can't be the only thing. The good thing with Bitwise is that they've hit it from a few different strategic points. One is the school to get more young people to have the opportunity to transition to a better life, even without a college education, because that's Irma's background. Well, she had a college education, but she realized they could be teaching people to code and they could get $60,000 a year jobs, whether they were from, you know, Riverdale or, or, you know, Armona or wherever in an outlying community. Uh, and then they created the tech company to actually hire some of those people. So they actually had a job after they got training, which is a flaw in a lot of job training schools. You get trained and then there's no job waiting for you, but really they're developers. You know, really their, their main play is they're a glorified developer, but instead of buying a building and just saying anyone can rent here for 75 cents a square foot, we don't care who you are. They've tailored it to a specific kind of the market and commercial real estate people would say, why would you limit the people that would rent in your space? And what they've done is said, yeah, we won't take everyone, but the people that will want to be here will really want to be here and be willing to pay for it. Um, which, which is counterintuitive, except in the big cities where they figured that out a long time ago, that if I open a building and it's just for film editors, I'm not gonna accept an attorney why would you do that? Well, there's a whole bunch of film editors and they like to be around each other and learn from each other and get jobs and referrals from each other and create another new business together. And it creates a, a really a, it's a lifestyle. Almost. Yeah. It's that so, Silicon Valley model where it's like, you know, if you have 
you know, you, you, you ask why did they pay such insane rent to have their companies here? Why don't they just, you know, move them to Fresno or whatever? Yeah. So do that because there's all this kind of like, there's all these tentacles that are going everywhere. And it's, uh, you know, that kind of intense proximity creates, you know, the kind of innovations that we want, you know. Right. And those people want lifestyle. Yeah. So if I'm going to make 200 grand a year working for Twitter, I want to, and I'm 28, I want to be able to go and have killer martinis, you know, with all my friends after work. And I don't want to, uh, I don't want to move to a place that shuts down at six o'clock. Right. I'm 28 for God's sake. I want to be out dancing and having fun and meeting people. Yeah. So I'll have kids and then I'll move back. Every, all of these things, what we're talking about, booze and restaurants and Bitwise, they're all kind of, they need each other to work, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this, it's this fine balance of like, you have to have them in order to have these other things. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that, I guess the question is, is it working? Are there, are there tech people moving downtown? Yeah, it, it is working, um, although it could, like revitalization work more quickly if community leaders would learn how things work and then figure out how to make it easier to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing. Yeah, um, yeah. We could speed up this process dramatically. Um, so everything is a fight. So you can't have it take a year and a half to get outdoor dining permits approved when yeah, we yeah. designed the street for outdoor dining. Like yeah. So we made it easier on the one hand and said, by right, if you're a restaurant on Fulton Street, you get 15 feet in front of you for outdoor dining. By right, no permit, nothing. How did the bureaucracy interpret that? Uh, you need a permit and it needs to come from three different departments and you need to have this outrageous insurance requirement. No, we put in the plan, you don't need that. You can just throw chairs out there. Like that is what we put in the plan and their interpretation has taken a year and a half to get outdoor dining per permits approved. That is a fundamental flaw. Yeah, and if right? you know, if you're a business owner, walking into here's a fun red tape uh, activity. Right. You want to, do you want to get involved in this? You know, you're going to invest your money, and you're also going to have to jump through 400 hoops, and also your profits. You know, you're going to make marginal returns on your investment for a while, and then maybe you'll be successful. It's like, who's going to sign up for that? So think of a, of a narrow, traditional downtown space, which is what you like, right? A bunch of businesses on the same block. So yeah. you have narrow buildings. So everyone's attracting their same people and you get that vitality feel. Mm -hmm. Well, with uh, having a narrow space with a kitchen, storage, ADA restrooms, all the other stuff, you end up with about 12 tables in a 3,000 square foot space or 2,000 square foot space. Yeah. Well, that 12 tables, man, you gotta, that's where you need the alcohol and you need the other things to be able to, you know, and the $30 entree, not the $6, you know, Subway sandwich. So right. you need that. So think if I can give you another 12 tables in the front that you're not paying rent for. Now your business model just fundamentally changed. I doubled the amount of tables, mm -hmm. but my rent didn't go up. Yeah. Now yeah. I can get, make a restaurant work. And, and a, city, a city can flex and give you that, you know, it's, right. like, it's like a subsidy almost, you know, right? Like 
And then when you come downtown and you're on a block that has six or seven outdoor dining places going on, now you feel like you're somewhere, right? As you, right. Even driving by, you're like, man, look at all those cute guys and girls hanging out in front of that place. Where, where do I park? Parking's yeah, yeah. $5. Who gives a shit? Here's five yeah, bucks. Yeah. I want to get over there and right. see why everyone's having fun, right? Now, right, right. you're willing to do anything to get to the fun party, mm-hmm. right? You don't care about parking or... You know, there's three homeless people on the block. You're not even noticing them because you're trying to get to the damn Margarita and yeah. and and a girl named Margarita. And you know, exactly. it's like that's what makes the world go round. And there's right. nice music coming out, right? So yeah. you've got to get out of the way of that stuff, or it we're just slowing it down. So same with Bitwise. You know, you want to say, um, you know. Uh, we just on our two guys talking Fresno podcast, cheap plug there. Uh, we just had Tim. No, Gass. let's not let's not just do that. It's a great podcast. It's why I ultimately started this one. I think we're doing we're doing very similar things. You guys cover so many different areas that are worth listening to. Um, I'm I think my bent is a little bit more just like going in depth with one person in a long yeah. in a long form way. But we're doing the same stuff. We're trying. Oh, to- I know. I- I just was having fun with you, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We, well, you we said you were going to razz me for our podcast name, and we haven't got there yet. So I, I know this is an opportunity to tell me why this is not the best podcast in Fresno. No, I was just going to say I'm grateful for having uh, somewhere below the best podcast <laughs> on the best <laughs> podcast. I was going to have nothing but gratitude for yes. being somewhere further down the list to, that there you would let me hang out with you. You know, we're, we're Americans. We're all about creating our own hierarchies. You know, <laughs> that's, that's what we do. Um, anyway, so, so we had Tim, Tim gets on from Apple software. We haven't released that one. It'll be out in a week or two. And you know, there's a software company that has 8,000 customers around the world and it has a complete product for, uh, nonprofits and churches that mm-hmm. you know every church and nonprofit is loving it, right? Right. And so they've got 80 employees. Well, if every church and nonprofit in Fresno said, "Well, let's support the local guys," you know, I mean, if you're on a board or giving to a charity right now or or tithing to your church, and you go and go, are you guys using the local Apple software? And they say, no, it'd be kind of a pain to change. We're on QuickBooks or whatever. You have to go, I, I, I'm not going to give you any more money. Yeah. You've yeah. got to support the local guy. And it's not that they, you're doing that out of charity. Like they are building a great project that 8,000 people around the world are using, including some cities. But if we all supported them, and then I'd say, you know, as mayor, you know, let's, I'm going to get every church in the room, every nonprofit in the room, you're going to talk to them. And I'm going to say, I want you all to switch to this. And then I'd go to Tim Getz and say, and by the way, you're going to build the, you're going to buy the bank of Italy building. We're going to help you out. And I want Apple software up at the top visible from the freeway. And I want you, you know, to have 80,000 customers and I want to help you get there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the way, it really needs to work. So, like, you, so the, the model here is kind of that, you know, the, for a long time, the government has either done, you know, kind of unilateral things that have disrupted communities or prevented, <laughs> prevented positive change. So it sounds like you're kind of for like, you know, kind of deregulating some things in order to let organic 
life as it should be in downtown happen. Yeah, so well, there's, there's a reason you need a conditional use permit for a bar in Northwest Fresno. Yeah. Because you are likely gonna be really loud and you're gonna be next to a bunch of neighbors and it's gonna be really disruptive to their life and your trucks are gonna unload the seafood at four in the morning and make a bunch of noise with their brakes. And so you want to be able to say businesses that are in this neighborhood need to conform to what our needs are. Right. And in downtown you go, mm, that's the way it goes. Like trucks are going to come and go and there's going to be parties and some days it'll be hard to get to your house because there'll be a festival, but yeah. why don't you just buy some. Well, that's what people love. People love the pain of that. Yeah. You know, people, people buy that, you know, I mean, the most expensive real estate is that right. Down, you know, downtown Manhattan or Brooklyn or wherever is people wanting that. So you want to let that happen organically and you want to help that where you can by not having permit fees or whatever to get the thing going. But at some point you're going to reap the reward in having real estate that has a really high value and lots of sales taxes from all the restaurants and shops and you you, your city revenue skyrockets and you only have a few streets to maintain because it's a tight, compact area. I yeah. mean, the business model works yeah. for that. It doesn't well, work. I'm, I'm sad we're going to kind of go into a sad place to kind of conclude. So when I first visited, um, well, not first, but you know, one of the early times in which I visited uh, Fresno, um, I had a few different people take me to Peeves. Uh, it was as kind of a representation of like, these are interesting things going on. This is a cool place to hang out. So I remember getting a good beer and had some good food. And I think I was watching some, some soccer, football, whatever term we use that's appropriate. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I'm not an Arsenal fan necessarily, but, you know, I know that there's uh, community pushes in certain directions. Um, so tell me, tell me just kind of in brief the story of Peeves. Um, what was the intention there? Why did it not work? And um, is, there, is there a place in our, in our community for businesses like that? Yeah, so um, uh, one thing I would say is that uh, Peeves was not well thought out um, in terms of me jumping in and doing it. Um, but it was well thought out because I'd worked with so many restaurants on marketing. I'd even uh, part-time chefed with a farm-to-table restaurant. So I knew aspects of it. I didn't really know the business model very well. So having run the business incubator, when someone comes in and says, I want to do, I want to open a cement plant and I've only run a library. I'm like, eh, <laughs> you know, that's a little bit dangerous. Yeah. So, so, but I had been working with a bunch of downtown restaurants and they, they were like coming to me crying and like, we can't keep our doors open open and I'm your mediocre like wow here you know I've got all the complaints that people have about downtown with none of the upside and so I tried to help them build a plan where that could be more interesting and draw more people in and have more fun and they just were not getting it and they were just not making the changes so when the owner of Fresno Brewing Company called me and Kate Borders who was running the downtown partnership over and said I'm closing at the end of the month you know, I'd been working with the city on this downtown stuff. And I thought, oh, this is our only place open at night on the entire Fulton Mall. This can't happen. And I was getting ready to leave the city. And so I just cashed out my retirement 
and and threw it into a restaurant. And it was as much to show people, if you do these things that are interesting, that people will show up. And so that actually worked, right? So we, you know, had World Cup soccer. You know, everyone in town is showing American football. No one was showing soccer. And kind of like the Bitwise example, we talked about having real estate just for tech. You know, Jordan Wiebe came to me and said, you know, I want this to be an Arsenal pub. What do you think? And I go, I don't know what the hell you're, I don't know what an Arsenal is. And (laughs) whatever he goes, you know, it's a soccer team. We have devoted fans. And I thought, well, if it's going to be on at seven on Saturday night, I'm not going to show it because I want regular people just in here. He goes, no, it's at seven in the morning. I go, you do whatever the hell you want (laughs) at seven in the morning. I really don't care about that. And so, so we said we're an Arsenal pub and then all the other clubs, you know, Manchester and all that came and they're like, we want to be here too. I go, nope, you can come here to watch the Arsenal matches when they play Manchester. And I remember these people were really mad at me and they said, why would you do that? I go, because I want you to go to another place and have them be a Manchester pub. Exactly. And then another place. Cause when you're in like Boston, there are softball leagues and bowling leagues and all the dart leagues and it's all these pubs competing with each other and mm-hmm. the winner has to go back to the loser or the losers have to go to the winner's deal and buy the entire restaurant around of drinks and yeah and I mean, next you, year you win and they come to yours and it's like that's yeah, the community that's that the I thing. want is in big cities, if you go to Yelp, you can always look up where's the Bears bar or where is right. the, where's the Niners bar in LA? You know, you can always find those places. There will be a Bears ball in London. Mm-hmm. If you live in London, you'll find a place that is open on Sunday morning that you're all that your, your, uh, you know, people that are Bears fans get together. Yeah. There are, I've heard of like people that watch the Giants games in like Berlin. You know, all these expats or whatever, they're away on business, they get together and it's, that's super fun. So, you know, I, I should have been selfish and said, no, I want them all here, but I, I didn't want that. Um, I, this culture change where we get out and have fun and meet each other and, and all that is really important. So the other thing I really believe in, like with the Apollos example is supporting our local businesses. We grow the most food of anywhere on the planet by diversity of crop and by dollar value. Six of our counties in the San Joaquin Valley grow more than any other state in the country. If this, just take six, not even the whole San Joaquin Valley, no other state grows as much of us in dollar value. If you go look at crop diversity by county, you'll only see about five counties maybe 10 counties in the country that grow more than 10 commercial crops we grow 350 the scale tops out to 10 or more and we're at 350 that's special yeah but where the hell do you go to see it i mean you get to go to a chain restaurant and have i mean we had starbucks in hanford that had the creamer comes from you know somewhere back east or whatever and you're like we had, this is the dairy capital of the world in Tulare and Kings County. And you can't somehow manage to get local cream in here. Like, so that's what I mean by being yourself and being interesting. 
Yeah, I want to so, taste Devin Nunez's cow's milk. That's what I want to taste when I go to Larry. You know, that's what's important to me. No, but I hear what you're saying. I think, you know, it's, it's bad marketing, you know, ultimately bad marketing. And then there's like a, there's like a, a disconnect between yeah. what's around here and our, our lived experiences. Yeah, so I remember H. Steele, our marketing guy goes, what's, what should our tagline be? And I said, level local. And that was our hashtag the whole way through. Love a local. We did a love a local festival. We had five. My goal was to have at least five local ingredients on every plate. And I would fight with Oscar if he didn't have local beers on, on draft. You know, he loved the craziest, most interesting beers, you know, he could get. And I'd go, yeah, that's great. And I also want Tioga Sequoia and Full Circle and and uh, all the other local guys. And then we opened, we finally got our wine license after a year and we only had local wine and people come in. Oh, I don't drink this. Well, I go, well then how come uh, there were only three gold medals at the orange County fair for Zinfandel and none of them in Napa or Sonoma or Paso got one of them, but Cedar view and Sanger did. Yeah. So you're, you know, more than the judges of the orange County wine festival. I don't think yeah, so. I mean, the thing is, is everything starts as swill if it doesn't have support. You know, if you, if you buy the stuff, it's going to get better, right? I mean, that's, right. at least that's my theory. I mean, I, I, yeah, it's, it's disappointing. So, and you can't compare the two, right? You have these wine regions in France for a reason and Italy, you have all of these sub regions and they don't say, well, they would argue with each other about who's this best. Cause that's just pride. Yeah. But as a wine connoisseur, you'd want to go taste what each region does well. Mm-hmm. And so when, once again, when we become interesting and we don't give a shit what anyone thinks and we're going to perfect what we do well here, then everyone's going to want to flock to it and, and experience it. But yeah. we've, got to, we've got to hang in there with the winery until they figure it out. Think of the learning curve on being a winemaker. Yeah. Like it's not like you're going to try a new hamburger recipe tonight and taste it and go, no, this sucks. I would add more of this and less of this. And the next day you make a better one. Hell yeah. with wine. You might not know what it tastes like for five years. And in that five years, you would have made another five years of bad wine before you figured out how to correct it. Yes. I mean, it's, it's generations. So, I mean, beer is easy compared to wine. Yeah. yeah. You can make much, a bad batch. Like a, a, a circuit of like feedback or feedback cycle yeah. is much faster. Yeah. So, so why did Peeves, why didn't it work out? Well, I would say one is it took me uh, a few years to figure out the business model for the restaurant. And in that amount of time, it, you know, uh, if I'd have known what I was doing going in, cause we made a lot of money. Um, that people assume that when a, business fails it's because they didn't make enough money yeah right non-business people think that business people know you can make enough money but if your expenses are higher (laughs) you're not going to stay in business so i didn't have a good handle on the food costs i really don't like to manage people uh and if you're going to run a kitchen you're back in there going no god damn it i told you to make the sandwich this way and you throw the plate against the wall and you know there's a reason they act that way because the yeah. people that work in kitchens respond to that dave ramsey or not dave ramsey that's a different yeah. person what's his name yeah uh, dave yeah. ramsey's a financial guy 
Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but you're close. Yes. Close enough, but now I can't think of who. But yeah, there's a... There's Hell's a, Kitchen, whatever. Yeah, his yeah. yeah. Well, when I would go back there and completely lose my marbles and just scream at people, it would get good for a week. And I went, this is unfortunate because I'm not the guy that likes to scream and yell. Yeah. And that's yeah. all they're responding to. So I'm either going to have to learn to scream and rel- yell or I suck at my job. And, you know, and I would tell them, you know, do this. And I'd come back and it wouldn't be done. And I'd just get frustrated and not want to deal with it. A good kitchen manager is like, and a good restaurant managers. I talked to one restaurant guy he goes, I can tell you how many slices of bread I have in my restaurant at any time. Yeah. And I'm like, I know we have bread. That's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure we have bread. Well, it seems uh, like, it seems like you, you like to have your hand in a lot of different things. And it seems like the kind of the restaurant mentality is just like such a, a drive to anal micro control of every little thing that it, 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 it's a challenge if you're not, yeah. if you're not like that. So our per square foot revenue put us like among the top in Fresno, not Pismos or something, but based on the amount of revenue we got by the size that we have. I remember showing Tom Ferdinandi one time and he's like, you're doing this on the Fulton mall. This is insane. Most restaurants in Fresno that aren't really high volume restaurants are not hitting this revenue per square foot. You know, but then you look at expenses per square foot and I didn't really understand when you're making everything from scratch, your employee costs are going to be way out of range. And so your prices have to go way up. And I'm like, well, my hipster clients are not going to pay $17 for this burger. And they're like, that's what the formula says it needs to be when you're hand making it buying local beef, buying Max's bread, you know, making your own sauce in-house every day. This is a, now a $17 burger. And I'd say, well, I'm not going to charge more than 11 And yeah. they're, And then you're losing money on every burger, right? Right. And I think people have to come around to that idea. It's kind of the beer thing, you know, like we're all now willing to pay like $13.99 for a four pack of tall cans. But if, right. you know, if you told my parents that that's what they'd have to buy for a four pack, they would be like, What? what, how, how, you know, it's like a, it's, it's the quality though is, is sometimes maybe similar, but it's, it's who made it, how it's made. And it's, it's harder to sell that than, you know. Yeah. Well, and, and really those tastes changed. And so, you know, I mean, we made, I still would say the best salads anywhere in, in our region, but you know, we weren't charging for, for what that, that cost would be to go to drive to Kingsburg to, to get fresh blueberries to put on the salad while they were in season and make up, make up our own dressing every day. So, um, you know, that's business model. That's a formula. And I really didn't understand that formula. If I did it again, I would go in with a much better sense. You know, I had a friend who was a bookkeeper that started with us and she had done big projects, uh, and then thought a small restaurant would be easy. But we had so many moving parts and we started with a daily changing menu. So we really couldn't get a handle on our food costs that she just started throwing everything into one category. And I had no data to say what was making money or losing money. And we were so busy. That was not our problem. We were so busy that I could never get a bookkeeper to go back and straighten everything out to give me good data. 
and you just you're you're basically flying a plane without instruments in a snowstorm at that point (laughs) with surrounded by mountains you're gonna crash eventually and so that happened and then oh god we had this amazingly horrible thing happened with fresno pd which set off a bad things with uh, abc although they're great to work with and the board of equalization and it just kept snowballing and snowballing so by the time that the fulton street project which i've fought so hard for started and they i didn't really foresee the ada um or osha compliant i should say uh fencing that basically blocked us all off and we lost 65% of our revenue the first week the fencing went up that we just barely made it to make the last payroll. And then I, I closed it up. Yeah. Do you but think it wasn't it, lack of people. Right. It right. wasn't lack of revenue. It was lack of me understanding the business model. It was not the community's fault. It was my fault for not understanding a business and getting into it anyway. Yeah. Do you think do you think downtown's like ready for a version of Peeves to open up now? Oh, if I reopen Peeves again right now, I mean, we were doing ninety grand a month at one point. I mean, that is so far off the charts for any downtown business. Yeah. Uh, for such a small space, too. I know it was crazy, and I mean, we just had. Yeah, I opened it in September, and I said, if we're not at break even by February, we're done, and we hit that mark. And, you know, we just stayed at break even pretty much the entire time. Uh, it was, and, you know, and I have a really hard time seeing people waiting in line. So we would, you know, have a ton of staff on. I think we had 22 employees. That was completely crazy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I have no doubt it would work. I, yeah, I have yeah. no doubt. But it would also work with someone who, like at the last minute, I found this great guy, David Williams, who's an accountant in town, but he'd been in the restaurant industry for 20 years. If I had started with him, we'd probably still be in business because I would have had the data make, to make the right decisions. and what Checks and balances and things. Yeah. 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 You know, I think, you know, I think lines are underrated. I, you know, whenever you go to San Francisco and you try to go have breakfast, what ends up happening is you'll put your name and they'll be like, well, it's about two and a half hours wait. You're like, great. So, you know, you go home, you read a book, you may take a shower, you shave, you go get a latte, take your dog for a walk. And then it's finally time for breakfast. And you yeah. think no one would do that, but people, I mean, there's a line for two and a half hours for a reason because everybody does that. And right. yeah, I, it's it, I have the same, you know, I want to fix people's problems. And so if someone's in line, it appears that they have a problem that could be fixed. You know, but it's, yeah, it's, uh, I don't, I also don't know though if, if people in Fresno are ready for lines, you know, they're, they're so used to have everything on demand to them. Yeah. Like a drive through. Exactly. Well, I won't, I won't keep you any longer cause we're, we're, we're bordering on Joe Rogan territory in terms of length. So, uh, last question. Um, do you have a couple books that uh, you could recommend that have influenced your ways of thinking? It doesn't necessarily have to be about anything we've talked about, but just books that you've enjoyed that. Well, we we talked about a few of them. So anyone that's interested in revitalization, I'd say read at least the first five chapters of The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. Yep. It basically lays out the philosophy of all that. I wish she had a better editor because it's a painful book to make it all the way through, but it's yeah. really good. Um, and those of us that like 
real revitalization, we worship her. So she is the yeah. matriarch that started it all. Uh, and, and she did it in a time when she got vilified by the planning world because she called them out on all their bullshit. Yeah. Um, Richard Florida's uh, Rise of the Creative Class. He's really the first person that put research into why these revitalization principles work and the cities that are following them, why they're more successful than the cities that don't. Um, and talks about diversity and creativity and entrepreneurship and fun and all those pieces. Um, and, and it's been updated a little bit. So um, um, I think that's a really good one. We mentioned Jonathan Haidt's books. I yep. got, if I had a billion dollars, I would pay people to read The Righteous Mind. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it would fundamentally change the polarizing world that we're polarized world we're living in. Oh, the UPS. There's manager. the dog. <laughs> hey. Uh, so, um, yeah. Thank you. I have to edit, I guess. Stop. No. Um, so I think those are good. But the other one that I would leave people with is to read the blue zones. Ah, that's a food book or what long longevity book, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, when National Geographic set out to find the places where people live the longest, healthiest lives, and then the intersection between what those places are like um, and how they live and the quality of life. And now they're going to cities in America and they're adopting blue zone principles. And when we look at like the health disparities of Southwest Fresno and um, small outlying communities and concentrated poverty. Uh, it's a really great uh, insight into how you would want to create a city and how you would enjoy living in that city and also having a lifestyle. And one of them popped up in California in Loma Linda. Oh yeah, the the Seventh Day Adventists. Yeah, yeah. and vegetarians. And we, they like to walk. Yeah, the whole deal. Yeah, they believe in community service. Um, they show this doctor, it's kind of a, uh, if you've seen anything about it, they show this doctor, he's like 94 years old and he's fixing his fence. And they're like, well, you could pay someone to fix this fence. And he goes, yeah, I got a, a bid for like $5,000. And I thought, why would I pay someone else $5,000 if I could fix it myself? And you see his arms, he's got muscles, you know? And they go, and then two days later, he was in the hospital. And everyone's like, oh, and they go, Yep, he's a surgeon. He was doing heart surgery the next <laughs> two days later. And you're like, what? This guy's 92 or 94 years old. He's building his own fence. And he's because they stay active and they're eating reasonably healthy and they're yeah. in touch with each other and care for each other. So yeah. that's yeah. a that's another great one that is just life changing, I think. Those are all great books. And if you've made it this far in the podcast, it probably means you should be listening uh, to two guys talking about Fresno uh, because uh, they they make a lot more episodes than I do and they cover a lot more diverse topics. So if this is a this may probably be a good starting place for you if you've made it this far in the podcast. You clearly are invested in things in our community and should be listening uh, to Craig's podcast as well. Um, yeah, well, we'll have you on sometime um, and we can do a little cross cross. We did that with uh, flowing with famous guys where. We, were, we all did it together, and then we both shared it on our podcast, and that was kind of fun. That's a great idea. Um, well, thanks for coming on, and 
you know, sorry we took two hours, but there's just, you know, I mean, these things are near and dear to my heart and all these topics about revitalization. And so, you know, I just and couldn't help myself. Wanting they're to not, it. they're not simple either. We don't no. get to the, we don't get to the problem if we, if we simplify it. Right. Right. So yeah. I appreciate Occam's razor is not know. true here. Yes. Right. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to not miss an episode and give us a rating and review. It really means a lot. Uh, We're going to keep bringing you amazing guests. um, So stay tuned for our next episode, which should be dropping next week.